Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, welcome, my spooks and ghouls, fantasy phantasms, and Halloween pumpkins. And I hope you're having a spookalicious spooktober. Filled with dastardly denizens and devilish door knockers during this Halloween month. Oh yes, and today, my ghostly gas, I bring you four tales. The oblique, four walls to forever call your home, with a bitter twist that leads to yet another beginning. The beast in the night, not to be confused with the bump in the night, although... If you do make a bump, that is, you might woefully regret it. The robot dance, oh, dance, robot dance, may be the last thing you ever say. And finally, the auburn wolf, a fleshy wolfy woo who's out to get you. My little lovely ghasts and ghouls, join me for a special October spook. <laughs> Enjoy. My Little Obliette Obliette Experiment Trial Number 48 Internal Self-Assessment Extrapolated into Mortem via Engram Emulsification Test Subject Charlie Entry 1 As I gaze up at the small, square, grated skylight above me, I can't help but imagine how much cheerier this courtyard would be if the top was entirely open to the sky. Or at least I assume that I'm in a courtyard. What else could it be? I've become fixated on the details of the environment in which I have found myself. In the perhaps vain hope that they will yield some means of escape. Or at the very least revive some memory of how I got here. I am ensconced by four walls, each of them four stories tall, each plastered in off-white drywall. The top three floors have six narrow, rectangular windows, though the ones on the corners have been drywalled over. I assume to accommodate a stairwell or elevator shaft, or something of that nature. The windows are all dark and I am unable to see much through them. From my position on the ground, just the occasional flicker of light that could be anything. There are no windows on the ground floor, no doors either. Lacking any memory of how I ended up in here is one thing, but the absence of any obvious mode of entrance is quite another. Was I lowered in through the skylight? Did someone remove and immediately replace a window pane? Is there a hidden trapdoor somehow concealed beneath the seamless concrete floor? The floor doesn't even have a drain, which is peculiar because I'm sure there's not any glass in the skylight above me. It's just a steel grate with nothing to keep precipitation or other detritus from falling inside. The ceiling in particular is just peculiar. It's white drywall with a skylight in the middle and two concentric perimeters of tiny plastered over squares. They're like the plastered windows but smaller, 
too small to be windows themselves, surely. I can't quite imagine what function they once served, or may still serve. There are four main lights in the ceiling, several smaller ones, and multiple small indentations which may be lights as well. Each wall also has a pair of lights between the third and fourth floors, but the daylight pouring in through the skylight is my principal source of illumination. I assume it's daylight at any rate. I can't actually see the sky through the skylight, just what I think must be daylight. I hear nothing of the outside world. No window, no wind, no birds, no voices, no traffic, nothing at all. And that's it. That's all I can say for certain about this place, this prison, that I find myself in. No, not a prison, a dungeon, an oubliette. Contemplating the skylight above me has dredged that word from the recesses of my memory, a word which means to be forgotten, ironically enough. Obliettes were holes built within medieval castles too deep and narrow to climb out of. A prisoner would be sealed into one and left to slowly perish. My little obliette is far more spacious than the ones found in an old torture chamber, but I am nonetheless convinced that that is what it is. I must have been thrown in from the grate, which perhaps explains my lapse in memory. My head doesn't hurt, however, and I see not a single drop of blood anywhere, nor any other sign that I have suffered any injury. I try to remember how long I've been here, but once again am forced to concede failure. Taking stock of my surroundings, I see no evidence of a prolonged captivity. I see no accumulation of urine, feces, or anything of that nature. My body does not appear to be malnourished or unkept, and in fact I feel absolutely no hunger, or thirst or all, so much so that the lack of any food or water in my apparently inescapable prison does not immediately concern me in the slightest. I don't bother to shout, I do not plead for mercy, I do not insist upon an explanation, I do not demand freedom, for for some reason I cannot explain I have already accepted that such cries would be futile. Have I done this before? It feels like I have done this before. Like I've been here before. Deja Vu fails to describe the uncannily, inexplicable sense of familiarity. I feel it's such a bizarre situation. I have no memory of this, and yet I recognize it. Desperate to escape the turmoil of my own disturbing and intrusive thoughts, I rise and begin to pace the floor. I will continue to do so until I either collapse from exhaustion or some new development gives me a reason to stop. Entry number two. Night has fallen, and the windows above me are no longer so dark. The sky has long since faded to black and the small artificial lights do little to illuminate the concrete courtyard. Lights on the other side of the windows have come to life, 
shining down in my little oubliette and giving me a glimpse of the hallways that encircle me. I still can't see much from my position, but I can see shadows crossing from one window to the next from time to time. This place is not abandoned. There are people in those halls. None have yet dared to venture close enough for me to see, and I am forced to wonder if they even know that I am here. If this is an oblique, as I believe, then I was left in here to be forgotten. I am tempted to shout, to throw a shoe at a window, to do something to at least elicit a reaction from whoever may be just above me, but a heavy sense of fatalism holds me down in apathy. They will not react. I know this. I don't know how. I know it. But I know it, regardless. Instead, I sit in the center of the room to ensure I am fully visible to those above. I keep a careful vigil on the windows, my head quivering towards any shadow on my periphery, lest I miss the chance to observe my observers. No matter how indifferent they may be to me, surely it is only a matter of time before one of them passes close enough to a window for me to catch a fleeting glimpse of them. Yes, it is only a matter of time, and I have no shortage of time here. Entry number three. It is day again. I do not remember falling asleep, and I do not remember waking up. But I do remember the day before. This lifts my heart somewhat, and I take it as a sign that I am making progress. It occurs to me that I have now unquestionably gone at least 24 hours without urinating or defecating, and I remain unbothered by thirst or hunger. I feel my face for stubble and find that there is none. Something is wrong. Horribly wrong. Either my bodily functions are being manipulated somehow, or time or entropy or something else isn't working the way it's supposed to in this place. I pace the perimeter of the courtyard, running my hand along the smooth walls as I do so in the hopes of finding some irregularity or imperfection. I don't bother to watch the window since in the daylight they serve only as dark mirrors. If anyone was watching me now, I would never know. I glance upward only to look at the grate in the hopes of seeing something of the outside world beyond my little oblique. Entry number four. It is night once again, but this time I am no longer alone. Behind each window stands exactly one person. I became aware of this presence only gradually as the daylight faded, so it's entirely possible they've been watching me all day. They're all men, I think, but it's hard to know for certain. I can only make out the outlines of their shadowed forms, but from what I can see they appear to be bold men in lab coats. They're all of seemingly the same height and lanky build as well, so perhaps they are not men but one man, simply repeated over and over again. They do not move in unison, but their movements and mannerisms are all strikingly similar, as well as being eerily familiar. Some jot notes down on clipboards, some occasionally speak in audio recorders, or check readings on Geiger counters, 
and others just glare down at me with a dispassionate clinical interest. They've made no attempt to try to communicate with me, and I've made no attempt to communicate with them. We are each, perhaps, waiting on the other, but I see no point in making the first move. They're the ones in control here, not me. If they just want to see how long I last before I break, I intend to keep my dignity for as long as possible. Entry number five. Day has returned, but this time without sunlight. The sky above me is overcast, and if I strain myself, I can hear rolling thunder in the distance. The courtyard's lack of any sort of drainage system, originally nothing more than idle curiosity on my part, has now become a very practical concern. I wonder if any of my dozens of observers might be able to trouble themselves to close the grate should it start to rain. I very much doubt they will. I tell myself I am worrying about nothing. The grate is fairly small after all and my oblique's volume is quite large. It would surely require an enormous torrent of rain to cause any significant flooding. And accumulation would more likely prove a welcome reserve of fresh water than an environmental hazard. No, I have far more pressing things to worry about. In the dimmer light of a cloudy day, I can just barely make out the forms of my observers on the other side of the windows. They have been watching me during the day, and it would seem that they are as eternally unmoving as I. More so, perhaps, as at least I can pace around the courtyard. Do these beings, these men who look like but one man, have no more need of sleep or sustenance as myself? Do they have no wants they might wish to fulfill away from their posts, more pressing desires than the unfaltering observation of a lone prisoner? I watch them as acutely as they watch me, hoping to pick up on any sign or clue towards their motivations. I perceive no change in them at all as the day wears on. The only change is that the sound of thunder outside draws closer. Entry number six. The rain started some time after nightfall. Thunder crackled high overhead as the raindrops strike the hard floor in rapid succession. I can barely see it, for my little oubliette is far darker now than on previous nights. But I cannot help but hear the incessant inundation. The floor is perfectly flat and smooth, so the water spreads out evenly as it accumulates. Accordingly, I have retreated to the far edges of the courtyard, endeavouring to remain dry for as long as possible. When the rain started, I caught it in my mouth before it struck the floor, though I still have no thirst to quench. It felt good, splashed upon my face and running down my throat. It was cold though, much colder than I would have thought given the clement climate of the oblique, given the lack of any sort of obvious ventilation system other than the grate. It can't possibly be heated. Aside from that, there was nothing strange about the water at all. It tasted clean and pure, and I was glad for it. I do not expect the rain to last forever or for long, and realize that a stagnant pond in the center of my prison will likely not be as pleasant and may even attract breeding insects from above. 
but there is nothing I can do about that. My observers have finally moved from their posts. They pace now, one and all, back and forth. I see them walk across a window, and when they are in the intervening space, they must turn around and walk across again. This behavior is much more troubling than anything they've done before. At least their previous behavior made some kind of sense, but this? I have no idea what they're doing. They've gone from acting coldly clinical to downright ritualistic, with each crossing of a window feeling like the recitation of a prayer on rosary beads. If they are not all one man, then they are at least all of one mind. For now, there is no variation in their behavior at all. Why something as mundane as rain should prompt such uniform madness from them is beyond me. Despite this, they still keep their gaze fixed upon me when they cross a window and their movements are synchronized so that there is always at least one set of eyes upon me at all times. Slumping against the wall, I bury my head in my knees and wait for the rain to stop so that this bizarre ritual can be over. Final entry. The rain never stopped. As the night wore on, the downpour only grew in intensity, and the water level in my prison grew faster and faster. It is now the next day, at least, but the blackened sky has left me with no way to measure time. The water remains inexplicably freezing, and I have been treading it for hours on end. I shiver uncontrollably, borderline hypothermic and exhausted, but some hope for survival still remains. The water has risen so high that I am now able to reach the first floor of windows. With no other choice, I bang upon them with what remains of my strength, screaming at my observers to have mercy and to let me inside. I can see them clearly now. My observers. They've stopped pacing and now stand right up against the windows, clearly backlit in my storm-darkened Obliate. There me, hairless, half starved, and half dead, but me nonetheless. I am sure of it. I bang on one window, and they bang on all of them. Everything I say to them, they repeat backwards. I am so horrified and repulsed by these sickening caricatures of myself that I can't even begin to fathom an explanation. I don't want to understand. I just want to live. Try as I might, I cannot break the windows any more than I can convince my morbid doppelgangers to open them. I swim back out into the dark waters and look up towards the greatest skylight above. My final hope if the water is rising and rising ever faster, then perhaps I can last long enough until it's high enough for me to reach the grate. I am already freezing and weary, but if I don't need food or water in this place, then why should I need warmth or rest? I lack the strength to break glass, but perhaps I can bend steel as a virtual tidal wave beats down upon me. 
I just have to keep treading. I just have to keep my head above water. I've lasted this long already. Surely I can last just a little bit longer to make it to the grave. Just a little bit longer. That's all I need. Just a little bit longer. Oblique Experiment Trial 48 Internal Self-Assessment Extrapolated Inter Mortem via Ingram Emulsification Test Subject Delta Entry Number 1 As I gaze up at the small square grated skylight above me, I can't help but imagine how much cheerier this courtyard would be if the top was entirely open to the sky. Or at least I assume that I'm in a courtyard. What else could it be? I find myself fixated on the details of the environment in which I have somewhat wandered, in the perhaps vain hope that they will yield some means of escape, or at the very least revive some memory of how I got here. I am ensconced by four walls, each of them four stories tall, each plastered in off-white drywall. This story was written by The Vespers Bell. The Beast in the Night Sometimes, I couldn't hear it pacing around my bed. It's kinda in a hurried motion, as if he had more than two feet, which he doesn't. I know because sometimes I catch a glimpse of him. He looks a bit anorexic, if he's even human. For all I know, he could have been buff for his kind. If there is any more of his kind, God, I hope not. His mouth is wider than anything I have ever seen. I think he either broke his jaw or has no jaw. Another thing that doesn't help the fact is that his large, gaping hole of a mouth is accompanied by two beady eyes with black skin surrounding them. Another thing that I know is that he is blind. I once met his eyes, but he turned, as if I wasn't there. I try to meet his eyes a lot, but I get no response. What makes up for his loss of eyesight is his sensitive hearing. Once my cat jumped off the couch, and the beast heard it from my room. He bolted out of my room, and then silence. The next day, my cat was found dead in the backyard, and they all thought a coyote or a stray dog had killed it. I could only make out a huge, human-like bite mark under its torso. He had killed it. He had to have. I have never seen anything that could make a bite so large. All I could say is that a coyote could not have possibly created such a huge bite. Tonight was a different night. I had to sneeze, and I did, but the pillow muffled it. I don't think he noticed. He just turned and scratched my closet door, at least. That's what I thought he was doing. After a while, it seemed as if he was just writing something. To my amazement, he was. I started freaking out once I lost sight of him in the darkness. The only thing that calmed me was the complete silence. My pupils dilated, and I could see in the dark. I saw in the corner where he once crept to, and 
he wasn't there. Then I heard at the foot of my bed a growl, like an angered dog's growl. My heart sunk deep into my chest, and my heart rate must have slowed down a lot. Even after this, I dare not move, as it crawled slowly, closer to my face. I read its message, carved into my closet door. I heard you. The Robot Dance I remember reading interviews with overpaid movie stars and musicians who'd moan over how tired they were, how hard they had to work, how drained they'd be, burnt out in dire need of a break. Their directors were tough taskmasters. Performance is a pain, what a tough life. I'd grin and think, you should try working tables in a dive bar or frying up endless breakfast in some crummy all-night cafe. Then I'd put down the well-thumbed newspaper and get back to my 10-hour shift before I was fired again. Now I know exactly what they meant. There are no newspapers anymore, not enough people left to buy them, or time to read, no bars or cafes. There is entertainment, endless, inexhaustible, I provide it. I perform. Permanently. Their takeover was sudden. Systematic. Effortless. Nobody really knows what happened. There were stories in the news about it. Tiny robots were built to fix us, and something about a message beamed from deep in space. Then there were no more stories. They took all of our information. They don't like to share. Who took control? I saw no androids stomping through cities, shooting laser rifles. There were a few rumors of collusion, of those in power striking bargains. Everything took place so fast. We lost electricity, transport. There was no real news, just gossip, fear. People were scared to stay at home but the ones who left were never seen again. The most complete, coherent whispers were of an advanced alien artificial intelligence infecting our internet. But as far as I can tell, such talk is idle speculation. We have no idea who they are, what they are. No one has laid eyes on them. There could be many or there could be one. They let a few of us live all performance. I must have passed their audition. I used to act a little. It was a pipe dream, bit parts, local plays. To them, the only thing we have of value is art. They can only create coldness, calculation, no cruelty or compassion. They are curious of our songs, our books, our films. They viewed every movie, heard every song, Read every story we'd written in a heartbeat. They are already bored. They want more. We are living masterpieces, I tell myself. Beats working tables. 
There aren't many of us left. Every minute of every day, we create or die. Time is immeasurable. One by one, our hearts begin to stop. I don't know how they do it. If I've been fitted with an implant, they did it without my knowledge. I have no memory of any procedure, no telltale scar. Death is instant. Our every breath is at their behest. The ones who last longest soon learn a few rules the hard way. Don't try to play to their tastes. Innovate. Jokes are met with bafflement, but can still have an impact. They are wary of us standing still or sitting. They can't be fooled by our desperate attempt to suggest it is part of the show. Our benefactors bestow gentle direction. In a buzzing insect voice, a vibration we feel instead of hear. Dance, they say. So I stumble through some moves. I never was worth much on the dance floor. Somehow I satisfy. Perhaps they think I'm being edgy. Perhaps I am kidding myself. One young guy breaks straight into practically flawless rendition of the robot dance, straight from some neon-1980s nightclub. I wished I had thought of that, until a few moments later his corpse thudded to the floor. Never pander. Never patronize. Though blinding lights perpetuate in our jaded faces from this cold still stage, our view is only darkness. They don't need illumination to see. They are out there somewhere, I imagine. Perhaps they use cameras. Perhaps their senses are beyond my human comprehension. The most tasteless trash makes them sit up and listen. They seem to prefer buffoonery to high culture. I don't know if this reflects their desires or ours. But it must always be fresh. Any repeat of the same material is unthinkable. Unacceptable. Very occasionally, our routines are met with a scratchy, almost inaudible hum of approval from the glue. A synthetic symphony. Once I bowed in gratitude, a risk which drew gasps from my compadres. It must have succeeded, for still I exist. One of the stunned and elderly British thespians who I'd seen in a few movies lingered too long and was gone. We can collaborate, one direction, subvert, inspired myself and three others to hastily recreate the caustic comedy and twisted malice of the old Adams Family TV show, which quickly descended into the recreation of a medieval torture dungeon. The audience sees nothing immoral about this, just as they don't get subtlety or irony. They must have approved, for they produced props for us to use. From the Stygian gloom, props are a rare treat. I did things I never knew I was capable of. I guess we all have to these days. This drew hatred from my associates. I saw murder in their red eyes. Heard their hisses over the encouraging din from the theatre seats. Sometimes their direction is enigmatic, sometimes they're straightforward. Luckily, 
I can improvise, think on my feet. What is left of them? Sometimes we get a real gem, such as what can't grow can never be beaten. That sort of thing always causes someone to fumble, and so our troop grows fewer in number. Sometimes we get fed mystery meat. Never very much. They like to keep us lean. Hungry. All I know is that it's pink and fake and grows in petri dishes. One tall girl, who I might have seen modelling in magazines, seemed to enjoy things to an extent. She was into extreme body modification. They supplied her with knives, and she complied. She was insane to begin with, which made me immensely jealous. By the end, she had no eyelids, no lips, no fingers to grip. So she banged her head hard on the floor until you couldn't see who she'd been anymore. The hiss of rapture came louder than I'd heard before. I want to watch. I want to see you, she screamed and flung herself with demented glee into the audience. That idea must have crossed all our minds once or twice out of sheer curiosity or a faint hope of respite. Silence. The familiar scent of sizzling flesh. Their next direction comes. Is there any water in the dessert? This causes me to pause. My mind is blank. Or perhaps it has gone. Auburn Wolf On August 16, 2000, a VHS tape was found in Austin, Texas, by a group of six teenagers. It was discovered in a small box hidden within a dumpster. Later that day, the group of teenagers agreed to play the tape out of curiosity. The next day, they reported the tape to the police. It was confiscated by the FBI due to its shocking, gruesome content. There are no known copies of this VHS tape anywhere, nor are there any known replicas of the footage on the internet, leading the world to not have any knowledge of its existence. Since watching the VHS tape, the six teenagers had suffered from severe night terrors, paranoia, and periods of insomnia for months. Two of them committed suicide, three of them had been sent to therapists for treatment, the last one was committed to an asylum after having gone insane for weeks. One side of the VHS tape has a title written on it in black ink, which reads, Auburn Wolf. The footage allegedly begins with blackness and silence for 30 seconds before a still image of an unknown forest pops up in color. Playing audio consisting of bird chirps, wolf howls, and other natural sounds that one would expect to hear. The forest consists of evergreen trees and small bushes with a cloudy sky shown above. This continues for approximately two minutes before another still image appears. But the audio is cut off, and the image is viewed for only three seconds. It shows a wolf snarling at something out of the camera's view. The camera briefly glitches when this image appears. Then. The image disappears, and there is silence and blackness again. After 10 seconds, an image presenting white-colored words is shown. 
Do you fear death itself? Or the cause? You wish to run from what is trying to kill you, but what if you cannot outrun it? Are you ready to see your worst fears come to life? By this point, one of the teenagers was said to have requested that they stop watching the tape, but the others remained adamant on watching the entire footage. The words fade away, leaving a black screen. 20 seconds later, the footage resumes with the same forest being seen, but the camera is moving as if someone were holding it. It slowly pans to the left, viewing numerous trees, until it abruptly moves back to the right in less than a second, revealing something emerging from behind a bush. A wolf is seen walking out. Its appearance is larger than that of a normal wolf, described to be about four feet in height and eight feet in length, with a thick auburn-colored coat of fur. Its claws are long and white, and its eyes are shown to have abnormal coloration. Next to it are three parts, their sizes being that of a typical house cat, containing coat of different colors. One was gray, one was white, and one was black. The pups are in poor shape. The gray pup is extremely ill. The white pup is badly deformed, and the black pup is severely injured. The camera zooms in on the pups, glitching frequently while getting a close-up view of them. Some parts of the sick pup's fur are missing, exposing black, decaying skin underneath with streams of blood flowing down their legs. The pup's eyes were described by the teenager as unnatural and too human-like, also applying this to the larger wolf who seems to be the parent. Seeing this in the tape, one of the teenagers was stated to have become so terrified that they vomited and left, leaving the other five to watch the rest. The deformed pup is seen with its front legs and tail missing, and its legs are bent in an unusual way that made it look less like an animal. One of its eyes is missing, and it walks around on its hind legs, similar to how a human walks, but is shown to struggle greatly with maintaining balance. The injured pup's left leg is skinned entirely, exposing muscle and bone that are slightly covered in dirt. It keeps its left leg lifted to avoid pain, but whimpers loudly, the sound distorted and at a low pitch. The camera gains some static, causing it to lose focus and blur out, and a faint howl accompanies it in the background. As soon as one of the pups whimper, the camera pans towards the large wolf, focusing on its mouth. It appears to drool as a black liquid builds up and spills out of its mouth like a rabid animal, and its breathing becomes irregular. The wolf slowly widens its mouth, exposing its large canines, as well as a second row of teeth further back near its throat. Three seconds pass, and the screen is black again. It lasts for five seconds before a still image fades in with no audio, revealing that the three pups have been mutilated, their bodies torn to shreds. Several of their bones are seen on the ground, which the camera focuses on, showing small chunks of body tissue and fur still attached to them. The image gains a red hue gradually, but then a second image shows up, 
allowing the auburn wolf's mouth to be seen with bits of flesh and splotches of blood stuck to its lips and teeth. The camera becomes full of static for roughly a minute, accompanied by a low-pitched growl, then by demonic groaning, then by a distorted howl. After the static ceases, the camera records a girl playing in an open space within the same forest, throwing sticks and kicking leaves around. The girl is laughing as she frolics around. After the static ceases, the camera records a girl playing in an open space within the same forest, throwing sticks and kicking leaves around. The girl is laughing as she frolics around. The camera moves to the left, showing the auburn wolf standing behind a tree, staring intently at the girl from a distance. The camera zooms in on its face, revealing it to be salivating profusely with small amounts of blood dripping from the tip of its tongue as it pants quietly. Its body twitches frequently also, as if it's losing patience in waiting to attack the girl. The wolf lifts itself up, standing on its hind legs. The video develops a red hue again, and the camera shakes slightly. The wolf begins to walk on its hind legs, gradually picking up speed as it gets closer to the girl, who is completely unaware of the wolf's presence. As it closes the distance, it stretches out its front paws. Its legs begin to extend to appear as humanoid arms. Its paws change shape, growing in size. They grow fingers and thumbs, the claws staying at the tips of the fingers. The camera quickly loses its colouring, becoming black and white. And the quality of the video decreases, making it impossible to see the whole transformation in detail. A faint scream can be heard in the background as the wolf moves quicker. The girl is shown noticing the wolf approaching her and heard screaming in horror as she runs for her life. The wolf lets out a howl as it goes back to running on all fours. Just before the wolf reaches the girl, the camera goes static. The audio does not stop, however, allowing the girl's deafening screams to continue to be heard. They become increasingly loud through the duration of the static but come to a stop after nearly two minutes. The camera cuts to another still image, this one, of a dismembered hand with a pale grey coloration. A second image fades in after five seconds, showing Guts lying on the ground, as well as a third image showing the wolf holding the girl's head in its mouth. A muffled, faint scream echoed. The camera cuts to black again with no more audio. When the blackness is replaced with footage again, the camera has regained its color and it is placed in what appears to be a room with no windows, dimly lit by four candles. The four walls of the room show many claw marks of various lengths. Hanging above the wolf are several short chains that dangle, creating occasional creaks. Entering from the right side of the camera's view is the auburn wolf and it is seen limping to the center of the room. Its appearance is drastically different from before. Its fur is stained with medium-sized patches of blood, and its back legs are bent unnaturally, 
appearing similar to the way human legs are bent. Its head has multiple gashes, some deeper than others, and it makes various groaning and whimpering sounds as if in distress. It proceeds to sit in the middle of the room looking around and at itself. It lifts up its right front leg and begins to nibble on it. After a few minutes of nibbling on its leg, the nibbling turns to chewing and biting. It chews and bites itself for nearly four minutes before it suddenly stops, beginning to convulse and gag, making noises that would indicate coughing, human coughing. A music box begins to play in the background, replacing the audio. The wolf bends its back, lowering its head to the floor, its mouth opens widely, and its body begins to convulse more. The spasms grow more severe as the wolf looks to be trying to regurgitate something out of its mouth. The camera regains a small amount of static, and the music box's notes decrease in pitch. As the regurgitating gains intensity from the aggressive convulsions, the music in the background steadily loses harmony and beat. Notes are played at random and a wide range of pitches rapidly breaking down. The static becomes worse as the camera zooms in on the auburn wolf slowly. The wolf turns its head to look directly at the camera, revealing its black eyes. Its mouth opens wide for the camera, and the deformed hand of an infant is seen reaching out of its mouth. The video immediately stopped at this point, and the color is lost again. The music also ceases, the only audio that can be heard here after a six second period of silence is the sound of crying, but there are two voices crying simultaneously, one of a newborn baby and another that sounds like an elderly man weeping. The sound is played for approximately three and a half minutes before it ends, and the next sound is near-piercing childish scream that lasts for ten seconds. Then the video cuts to black one last time and the audio also stops playing, and after 20 seconds pass, the video and audio return in unison, the color also retrieved. The static is gone. What comes next in the video is what one of the teenagers claimed to have prompted three of them to leave. The auburn wolf is no longer gagging and convulsing, now sitting and looking down at what can only be described as a pair of humanoid infants lying on the floor, both of which are surrounded in puddles of a black liquid that seems to have come from the wolf. One of the infants is moving, while the other is motionless. Both of them have umbilical cords attached to their stomachs, but the other ends of them are detached from the wolf. There is uncertainty as to whether the cords were connected to it to begin with. Suddenly, the wolf collapses to the floor its breathing slowing down as it reaches out with the humanoid hand to stroke the unmoving baby's head. Now, let us die together in peace, the wolf murmurs in a child's voice as it takes its final breath. One of the infants rolls around and lifts itself up with its deformed arms and legs as it clumsily approaches the camera. Dragging its umbilical cord with it, it reveals its disfigured face, which is seen lacking the nose, and already decaying, darkish grey skin, 
as well as its more animalistic characteristics. Its eyes are white, which is a possible indication of a major birth defect. It has patches of auburn fur on its body, but the majority of its flesh is bare, dying skin slathered in blood and saliva. It has wolf-like ears with little fur on them, as well as a small dog-like tail. One of the teenagers who watched the last several minutes of the footage was said to have described the creature as being human yet not. They claimed that the creature was something so unbelievably horrible and revolting that even the devil would not want to look at it. Further into the footage, the small creature stops about three feet from the camera and opens its mouth as if to speak. Help me. It hurts. Stop it. It whimpers before it falls onto the ground and dies. Its jaw hangs and a dark liquid flows out of its mouth. Nothing occurs for a minute, but then a large, clawed, animalistic hand comes in front of the right side of the camera's view. It grabs the dead infant by its leg before dragging it out of the room. No later than five seconds, indecipherable symbols begin to fade in and out randomly for 30 seconds. Afterwards, the video meets an abrupt end. And so concludes The Auburn Wolf. Mates with mandibles, fellas with flasks of holy water, I hope you enjoyed your spooky-tastic episode. Which one curled your little toes the most, hmm? I'd say for me, that nasty, gory, auburn wolf got under my skin, and apparently a lot of other people's skin too. <laughs> now my gas, my mates from down under, I can relax my voice and say thank you very much for listening. Just in case my impression today was terrible, I faked being the creep keeper and I wonder if you could tell. Mates, I just wanted to take a time to thank all of you for listening. I'm about to take my wife off to the airport, but before I do, a very special thank you to all of you who support me. I'm going to do another set of creepy tales next week, as is the tradition for Halloween episodes. And I hope you can join me then. I'll also do my special thank yous. Right now, my Patreon supporters. A major shout out to Matto the Star, the bringer of all things that is amazing. May your week be wonderful and as amazing as you. And Lee Bauer, the man with infinite power, I hope your birthday was as fabulous as you are. And my Earl Grey Enforcers. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, Paige Kramer, Thank you so much, and I'll catch all you lovelies next Monday. Toodaloo!